Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушает. В России Послушайте сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Дело Я уже о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny announced this week that he was going on a hunger strike. The move came amid reports that Navalny's health is deteriorating and his supporters are claiming that the Kremlin is slowly killing him in prison. Navalny's announcement came just weeks after Amnesty International's controversial decision to revoke his prisoner of conscious status over xenophobic statements he made more than a decade ago. Today, we'll talk about Navalny as well as other issues from Russia and the former Soviet Union with a guest who's sure to bring a fresh perspective to the discussion. I've really been looking forward to doing this show for a while, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is somebody I've wanted to have on this podcast for a very long time. Terrell Germain Starr is, like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Terrell is also a senior reporter at The Root, where he writes about U.S.-Russia relations and about race in America. He's also the host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats, which explores foreign affairs from a black perspective. Terrell lived in Ukraine as a Fulbright Fellow and a freelance journalist, and in Georgia as a Peace Corps volunteer. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps, which is a memoir about his time in the former Soviet Union. Welcome to the Vertical Terrell. It's really awesome to finally have you on. Yeah, I'm really happy that you invited me on. I've been following your work for quite a long time and I've always wanted to meet you. And so we're both coincidentally um, fellows at the Atlantic Council. So, hey, all, yeah. all of the bars are aligning together, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm glad we finally made the connection. It was on a meeting of AC fellows that you and I actually met for the first time. But ever since I heard your really insightful interview with Ben Rhodes, on Pod Save the World, which is a podcast that I love. I never miss an episode. Earlier this year, I've been meaning to bring you on to the podcast. I'm glad we could finally finally make it happen. So what I thought we could do is, is talk about various issues that you have been writing about and commenting on uh, in the first half of the show. And then below the fold, we're going to have like a, a discussion about your upcoming memoir, which I'm, I'm pretty fascinated with. What, a, what an awesome working title, man. You want to sell books, that's a, that's a good title. So let's start with Navalny, who's again, of course, back in the news with his announcement this week that he's going on a hunger strike until he receives medical treatment from a doctor of his choice. Um, in an op-ed for the Washington Post this week, the Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karaborza, a friend of this podcast and himself a survivor of two assassination attempts, accused the Kremlin of trying to slowly kill Navalny in prison. Now, Terrell, a few weeks back, when the controversy over amnesties revoking Navalny's prisoner of conscious status erupted, you wrote what I considered was a very thoughtful and very nuanced op-ed for the Washington Post on the matter that, quite frankly, did track my own uh, thinking on the matter. Because on the one hand, I'm a big admirer of Navalny, and that's no secret. Anybody that knows my work knows I admire the man, and I admire him for his anti-corruption crusading, which is a central issue for me. And I admire him for getting Russians to think of themselves as citizens, which is, which is radical um, and, and necessary. But at the same time, his past comments, um, which were made 2000, you know, more than a decade ago, but nevertheless, he's never apologized for him. He's never distanced himself from him. He's made some, I mean, to call them xenophobic is actually quite polite. These were flat-out racist yeah. comments. These were flat-out racist comments. Um, yeah. He compared yeah. South Asian migrants and Chechens to cockroaches dressed up as an exterminator. Um, and, and put the video out. Another where he's dressed up as a dentist comparing, you know, uh, ethnic minorities to, to tooth decay. I mean, not only were they racist, they were also quite childish, in, 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 in my opinion. He seems to have moved beyond that. But now, for our listeners who, who may not have read your, your op-ed, and if they haven't, they really should, what's your take on Navalny? How do you see this? How do you reconcile his civic activism, his nationalism, his xenophobic past? Uh, recount for the, the arguments you made. In, in your Washington Post op-ed. 
Well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you giving me time to really talk about this. So first and foremost, we understand that Putin's totalitarian regime basically you know, suppresses anyone like Navalny, anybody that wants to seek their own liberation. And so the, the piece that I wrote for the Washington Post, actually, it speaks to my personal beliefs that every person has the right to feel liberated. And that is something that Navalny does. And I think when we go to the decision of Amnesty International, their decision to take back their uh, prisoner of conscience status was actually a bad idea. And the reason why I said that in the context of his past statements is that, one, there's somebody on your team that has to know Russian, right? I mean, I mean, it's, it, there's plenty of information in English. Right. Okay? <laughs> right. I mean, there is ample information in English. If you just search Navalny, racism, you will run into a plethora of right. things that he has said in countless interviews with journalists in which he doesn't regret what he says. And I'll dive into that in a moment. But it was a bad choice because, one, it just shows how shoddy your research was. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to, or if you did any at all. And so it's like, okay, and the timing could not have been worse. And so it plays into a lot of Navalny supporters' fears that Amnesty succumbed to propaganda, Kremlin talking points. They have a very legitimate reason to feel that way. The challenge, though, is that Navalny, even though these statements are made in the past, I believe that a lot of the supporters... And by the way, I am somebody who supports Navalny. I, I want to make that clear, and I think that I did a good job of making that I, clear in my... certainly did. <laughs> oh, okay. The issue is that he has not had an in-depth conversation about how he renounced those views that is proportionate yeah. to how he articulated them years ago. Yes. And so you just can't say, oh... He's gone above it. He doesn't talk about it anymore. You simply saying, I just stopped saying racist things doesn't mean you don't believe them, okay? Right. And, and so there is a great deal of gray area that the Kremlin can manipulate. And so yeah. I do understand people's response that, hey, uh, Navalny is, uh, he's just been poisoned. He's, you know, he is in a fight for his life. That's all very real. But when you don't, take care of issues like that, they come up to bite you in the butt. And that's what's happening right now with Navalny. He's had a number of opportunities in interviews to say, you know what, I was wrong and I apologize. I even cited an interview they did with someone, and I forgot the man's name. I believe he's an economist who's based in, in Paris. I forgot the man's uh -huh. name. But you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You. He gets he gets defensive in these interviews. I've seen it. I, I'm not, I don't know the interview you're talking about, but I saw an interview he did with Ksenia Sopcek uh, mm -hmm. years back. And she was pressing him hard. I mean, Ksenia is one tough woman. And she was yeah. pushing him hard. And he would get defensive. He was visibly irritated. And I was like, dude, man, just say, you know, I was young and stupid and I made some stupid remarks and I disavow them now. Please just say well, that. Well, he well, didn't well, do yes, but, but yes, but correct. But here's the thing, though. And I think, look, I am someone, I cover race in America for a living. That is my job. My job is to literally think about race. I get paid to think about it from a domestic standpoint and from an international standpoint. I do not believe that a person's, you know, I, I believe someone like Navalny, every human being has a right to grow and to develop and become better human beings. I believe that. I believe that with any person, whether there's some white, racist, KKK, hood wearing person in America or elsewhere, I believe that that has a lot to do with my faith. But it also has a lot to do with the fact that no human being is disposable. No human being is quote unquote cancelable per se, right? And so Navalny needs to be given grace if he earns it. The problem is that he hasn't. And so he obviously can't do that right now because Putin is literally trying to kill him in a prison, right? right? So all these things are also true. So I think the takeaway from all of this and what I wrote in my article is that for Amnesty International, they actually made the situation worse because if you really want to have a conversation about race and diversity and everything like that, a, a more constructive approach, one, they shouldn't have taken away that status, right? I'm completely against that. Two, there could have been a more constructive way that Amnesty International could have used their platform to yep. talk about these issues and press his team to do it than to outright take it away because it makes it feel as though they've abandoned him. And that's not fair to Navalny because you gave it to him and now you're taking it back. I mean, how, how, how yeah. awful and awful is that? 
Yeah. No, that was really awkward. I mean, some of the things, a lot of things about this bothered me. It bothered me on so many levels. One level that bothered me is that the embassy's decision to revoke the status came after a very visible campaign from Kremlin surrogates online. Um, yeah. Now, that's true. That's indisputable. But you and I are sitting here bringing this issue up, and we're not Kremlin surrogates. So I don't like the idea of anybody that brings this up is a Kremlin surrogate. That's not the case, right? But right. it's something we should discuss. But it is – we have to be mindful of the fact that this is something the Kremlin is using. The other thing that I, I can't really wrap my head around – I mean we obviously can't get inside the man's head. We, we don't know what's truly in his heart. But I there are different theories about Navalny, that he has outgrown these things and he's embarrassed about them and just doesn't want to talk about them anymore, that his – Financial backers have told him to cut it out because this is bad optics. That's another, you know, that's a less charitable interpretation. I've heard that one. And there's another one, the least charitable interpretation, is that these views are shared by a lot of Russians and are shared by a lot of Navalny supporters. And he's, he's, he's something of a populist as well as an anti-corruption crusader and a civic activist. And I worry that he just thinks it's not politically wise for him to back off. I don't know which of you have, and we obviously don't know because we can't get inside right. the man's head. We don't know what's in his heart. What's your sense? Well, well you know, Brian, that's a very good question here. The one point I'll touch on, which I think is definitely verifiable, is that there are a lot of Russian intellectuals who think like him, okay? Yes. So let's just have, you know put it that way. And you saw it when the conversations revolved around uh, Black Lives Matter movement, right? And so there are a lot of disparaging views that a lot of Russian intellectuals have, you know, and political intellectuals have about Black people, about BLM in America, right? And yep. so- So I, allegedly know, liberal Russians have. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And so I believe that this is larger than Navalny, you know, which I think Amnesty International, if I were advising them that I would put them to task for, is that this is much larger than him. And so that further goes to my point that you're targeting him. And right. it's not fair, right? And, right. you know, it's like, okay, Navalny had this issue because let's, look, look, Brian, we've devoted our lives to this part of the world. We've right. gone to school. We've studied the languages. We're in the think tank world. We know how to distinguish fact from fiction. The average American does not. The average person in the world is not going to have the intellectual bandwidth or the bandwidth in general to parse out all of this stuff like right. we are. And so this is a larger conversation with Russian intellectuals. And so by constructively addressing it in Russia writ large and by platforming people from Central Asia who are critical, you know, mm -hmm. there is a better way to have this national reckoning with race in Russia. Because another thing you have to think about, too, is that a lot of people will tell you that there's no such thing as racism in Russia. They will say that this is an American. There is an American conception that's being forced upon our Slavic lands. And we all right. know that that's a, a BS. And that's the default. Yep. Well, a race in Russia is not like it is in America. And there is, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but there is, for all of America's faults, which I write about daily, you know, there is a national discourse where minority groups are empowered exactly. politically and socially. And that same dynamic is not happening in Russia. It just isn't. For a wide range of geographic, ethnic, you know, disbursement issues across the country, that, that issue is not happening, which explains why this national discourse about race isn't as potent as it is here in the United States. Well, because we have the institutions to deal with. I mean, for me, I'm an institutionalist. It really comes down to institutions, that, that we have institutions that are lacking in Russia. Um, we have institutions like an independent civil society. We have institutions like a free press, where these issues, where we as Americans can work these issues out, right? right. It's, it's harder in a society like Russia where you don't have these strong institutions. I mean, how, how can you have a conversation when you kill truth tellers? Right. I mean, yeah, wow. yeah, no. What I, I mean, I would agree with you. This was a an opportunity missed in this situation. Um, it's, it was missed by amnesty. It's to a degree, and it's hard to blame Navalny, like you said. He's in. He's you know, Putin's trying to kill him in a prison right now. It was an opportunity missed in the past. To he is one of the people that could have led a national discussion in Russia about this, and people would have listened to him, and his words would have mattered. And I don't think he would have lost that much support, quite frankly. And you know, quite frankly, the support he would have lost, I'd say, good riddance to that support. You know. Quite, quite yeah, frankly, good was, yeah, right. Good, good riddance to that support, but also, you know, the reason why I have these conversations, and I really want the listeners to tune in and listen to this part. At least in America, right? 
our foreign policy space, the reason, and we're going to talk about this later in the show about my own podcast and the reason why I do what I do is that, look, President Biden, he's doing it domestically, but a President Biden may not have a vigorous conversation with Navalny about race, but a potential President Kamala Harris will, remember, who is also of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we know what's going on with the the way that the political dynamics are taking place in America, you know, and, and keep in mind that a lot of Russian dissidents, a lot of people who flee Russia, they, they come to America, they come to D.C., mm -hmm. right? And so all these predominantly white institutions are dealing with their own reckonings with race. And so the reason why we need to talk about who Navalny is, the, the good, the bad, and the negative, and what to improve is that as our foreign policy space diversifies, these questions are going to invariably come up. We need to get ready because, again, if a potential president, Kamala Harris, is not going to ask these, you know, like if she'll definitely ask those questions. But keep in mind, you have an emerging Stacey Abrams. You have all these people of color who are coming through the ranks and who right. are gunning for the White House, and they care very deeply about these issues. You have Stacey Abrams talking about identity politics within a foreign policy context. Right. These conversations right. are going to happen, so it would behoove us, as people who care about this region, to encourage our colleagues in the Russia and Eastern European and Eurasian space to care about these things, because the power brokers that are coming up in America certainly will. Yeah, no, I would think, Terrell, you're absolutely right for two reasons there. One reason, and we're going to talk about this later in the podcast, I really want to get your views on this, is that to the extent that we can deal with our race issues in the U.S., we can enhance our own national security because hostile foreign actors like Russia are trying to exploit those divisions very, very explicitly on social media, and they're succeeding in a lot of ways. I mean, remember the 2016 election where Russian trolls organized two protests, uh, one by BLM and one by the KKK in the same town, right? And they yeah. fooled Americans and set Americans against Americans on the streets over the issue of race, which, you know, I don't have to tell you is a highly combustible issue here. To the extent yeah. that we can deal with this issue, we can protect ourselves from malign and hostile foreign actors. And I think that's really important. And the flip side of it is this is a conversation Russians need to have because there are serious issues there with regard to this without the institutional framework to work them out. I could go on forever on this, but I want to move on to some of your other work because I've been following your podcast and um, you've been doing a, a great series on Georgia, talking to all the different parties in Georgia. I just did a, a program a few weeks back about the political situation in Georgia. I care very deeply about Georgia. It's a, the former Soviet, Georgia and Ukraine are two former Soviet republics that I, I truly fell in love with in my time. I came over there, you know, as a Russian speaker, spending most of my time in Russia. But the more time I spent in Georgia, the more I fell in love with the place. But Georgia's having a rough, a rough go of it right now. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, many of us who consider ourselves to be friends of Georgia have been deeply concerned about their backsliding on democracy and a concomitant slippage and the two things aren't unrelated, back into the Russian sphere of influence. I think this is a very, very dangerous moment in Georgia right now. I had two Georgians, uh, Shota Gvineri and Eto Huziashvili, two of my really good friends uh, on, the, on the podcast a few weeks back. You have been interviewing leaders of the Georgian opposition on your podcast. You've been trying to get members of the, the ruling party, I think, with less success. I got them on. I got them on. You got one this week? Good. Yeah. Um, how do you see the situation in Georgia, and how do you see Russia's role in stoking that country's troubles? Boy, oh boy. So let me start off by saying that, yes, there's definitely a backslide in democracy in Georgia. What I'll also say is that the issue is a lot more complicated and it's not as black and white as some people may think that it is. And if someone gives you a straight black and white issue, I, you know, I will respectfully have to question if they fully understand, mm -hmm. you know, the nuances of what's happening there. And so I've interviewed, who pretty much most of you know, uh, representatives from most of the opposition and including the ruling party, Georgia Dream. So, you know, a very brief synopsis just for listeners who are probably not familiar with Georgian politics. Back in, in October, there were parliamentary elections that took place. And so Georgia Dream won, I believe, 90 seats, mm -hmm. right? There are 100 seats in the Georgian parliament. And so they, they're up by, what, 30, 30 plus seats, right? And so the opposition is saying that a wide range of voter irregularities took place, and so they have refused to be in parliament. But and that's been going on since October. And so 
in my conversations with the opposition, my questions are, who are you and what future do you see for Georgia? But more particularly, what are your grievances? And some of the things that they're saying is that there has been, you know, forced support of Georgia Dream in all the ministries, you know, like mm-hmm. civil yeah. service level, right? Right. You administrative know, methods. Yeah. And, yeah. Administra- yes. Administrative. But yes. But then they're also saying that for all the people like the OSCE and other observatory groups that came out because of the COVID restrictions, they weren't out in full force. And that's something that a lot of the opposition leaders have told me that have um, really restricted any um, real observations of voter irregularities. And right. then there is also an accusation by the opposition parties. All of them told me that the use of, in Georgian, they say kuchas bichebi, which mm. translates into street boys. Okay. Right. You right. know, like the, the, street, the street boys are going up to the polls and threatening people to vote for Georgia Dream or else. Now, here's the thing a brief note on that. That happened. That, that has happened in Georgian yeah. politics. The kuchas bichebi is a very real thing, it's not something that's brought out of your imagination. Like, that's something that legitimately happens. But the larger point is that a lot of the international observers, and I've told the opposition this, is that we understand your concerns, but you haven't given us, like, any real proof, right? I mean, these are things that you see people happening, but there's not, you're not giving us proof. And then, two, just because you have some irregularities, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have changed the outcome of the elections, because what they're because what the opposition is basically saying is that Georgia Dream stole thirty seats. Mm-hmm. That's essentially yeah. what they're arguing. But it's also about the structure of how Parliament is elected, and they were trying to change it to a proportional system. Which case the opposition would have done a lot better. So there's more structural. There, there, there's that, but but that's true. Yes, Brian. That, I was going to say, but that that's true. Now going into these talks, right? Because there have been two rounds of talks that's been led by the European Union. Now the opposition is correct about that as far as how the parliament is structured. They're, so they have very legitimate points in that regard. But the Georgia Dream, according to the people that I've spoken to, they're fine with those reforms. What they refuse to see on is snap elections and the release of political prisoners. Namely, you have Nika uh, Millenia. So, so here's the thing that a lot of people don't know. Melania is not in jail. He's not being permanently detained in jail. He just refuses to pay the bail, right? right? And so, and that's something that Georgia Dream told me. All he has to do is pay his bail. Now, on the other hand, you know, Melania was like, you know, these charges are trumped up. And so on principle, I'm not going to pay it. Well, he's right about that. I, I was there. I, I, June I, I, I was there in June 2020. I know what happened in front of the parliament in June of 2020. And these charges are, in fact, trumped up. And that was provoked. Uh, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, 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 I can't really fault him for that. My issue, I mean, all these things about, you know, do you elect parliament and single member districts or, or proportional representation? And did Georgia Dream steal 30 seats? These things are all... Um, subordinate to the larger issue that concerns not just the opposition in parliament, but generally Georgian civil society. And that is that the country is effectively ruled by an unelected, unaccountable oligarch who many, I think, without not without good cause, believe to be a, a, a Russian proxy. And that is, of course, Bidzina Ivanishvili, um, the, the oligarch who basically finances Georgia Dream, who earned all his money in Russia, just suddenly right. popped up in Georgia in 2012 and bought an election. And so, I mean, and not to say the previous government wasn't without its faults. I was a critic of Mikhail Saakashvili beforehand. But I had big hopes that maybe if Georgia Dream came to power, it was a broad coalition. It was going to turn into a, maybe a multi-party system. I, that was, those were my hopes. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. The coalition slowly, slowly, slowly got smaller and smaller and smaller. Every party that was truly democratic and truly pro-Western was either pushed out or left, starting with Iraqli Alasania and followed by the Republicans – the Georgian Republicans, not to be confused with the American Republicans, but uh, but uh, so th- these these are my concerns. I've seen this backsliding in democracy going for a while, and right now what we're seeing is the climax of it. And I'm I'm worried for my Georgian friends, and when I talk to them, they are worried. They so, they, they, they ought to be worried. Now there are there are a few things. So let's go back to 2012 when Georgia Dream took power. It took power. Because United National Movement became a bit too authoritarian for Georgians' taste, okay? And so they squandered that opportunity. And that's something that, that, you know, you can—representatives from 
United National Movement will, they may not explicitly say that, but they will acknowledge that yes, they, they want to. In private, Yeah, so they're not going to say it publicly, but privately, they'll tell you that, right? And so, and, and not only that, Misha, Shag, you know, uh, Mikhail Shagashwili, but, you know, Misha, and he, he started backsliding into an authoritarian uh, leader towards the, towards the, yeah, 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 but yeah, but pretty much at the, yeah. at the end of his first term, yeah. right? Because people thought it was his second term, but it was really at the beginning. I mean, I mean, at the end of his last term that you start seeing these different shifts, right? You know, and so basically, what's happening is that when Georgia Dream came in, people were hoping for, you know, like you said, a better, more, you know, like an advancement of what Shaq Treaty is doing. Because that's the thing, everybody, you know, I go to Georgia every year. Everybody will say. We're tired of Misha, but Georgia wouldn't be where it is without him. But let's go back to Georgia Dream. The problem is that all for all the points that you stated, yes, they have engaged in you know in the backslide of uh, of democracy. And Ivanishvili, let's talk about him. He made all of his money in Russia. My response to that is, who didn't? You know, a, a, a lot of people made their cash in Russia. Now, when you go to a place like Georgia, and it's very different from Ukraine that we both know, yep. you know, in love. So, like the oligarch, you know, the, the oligarchy in Georgia you know, is a lot more potent than it is in Ukraine, just as simply as not as many of them. Then another thing is that when you have somebody like that who is in power, I don't necessarily, I see Ivanish really, do I believe the concerns that, you know, he, he definitely operates the, the party. I do believe that. Do I also believe that he is like a Russian stooge per se? I haven't been convinced of that. You I know, have, I, I, I have. Um, I'd like okay, to see a little bit more forensic reporting on this. I'd like to see like a forensic reporting about exactly where his money came from because it wasn't just a matter of making money in Russia. The theory that many people are putting out there, and I, I tell Georgian journalists, you can't just say this, prove it. I said it smells right to me, but prove it, is that his money ain't his money. He's basically a caretaker of, of Gazprom's money, basically is what, I, what I've been hearing. Now, I haven't seen proof yeah, of that. me too. Well, I want to see some some reporting on this. I want to see some Georgian journalists do some digging and show me this, and then then we got a potent argument. We got a potent argument to sanction Shnivanishvili if that is the case. Yeah, yeah, but you know another thing, Brian. The irony of this is that uh, Alexei Navalny is an incredible investigative journalist. If he were here in America, he would have won several Pulitzer prizes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> no, that, yeah, no, you you are right. <laughs> I mean, that man would want to say, I mean, he would, he is, and, and he makes things so simple, right? And and that's his strength. But, you know, we need some Alexei Navalny level type of investigative reporting on this. And yeah, so you're definitely correct about that. Now, one of the things that the Georgian opposition have told me is that they think in this third iteration, because, you know, in, in the new Georgia, because remember the first, the first iteration post uh, Edward Shevardnadze. Right. Um, started with George, you know, started with Shaka Shwili. Now it's Georgia Dream. Now Georgian opposition leaders are telling me that they see the third iteration of Georgian politics as coalition sharing because anytime you give power to one particular party, exactly. they don't know exactly. how to handle it. Right. Yeah. So that's what they're trying to do right now. And so in these in the second round of talks that didn't result in the opposition going back to parliament, because that's what the uh, Georgia Dream wants is that they are agreeing on these reforms pretty much on principle. And I've spoken to folks who are in the room, and they say they're fine with that. But the main thing that Georgia Dream refuses to see, again, is that they're not doing these snap elections. The reason why they say this, and what they've told me, is that if we do snap elections, we're going to go back to the wild, wild west years of the 1990s, whatever Shevardnadze said. Now, yeah. whether we want to call it BS on that or not, that's what they're telling me. Right. Yeah, you know, no, I, I've heard that argument. I mean, I think you're right, Terrell. Exactly. Georgia has gone through this cycle, and it's gone through it. Let's see, Gamsa Herdia, Shevardnadze, Saakashvili, Ivanishvili, four times. I mean, the first post-Soviet president yeah, of Georgia, yeah, Gamsa Herdia, came in with a huge mandate. Right, came in, won an election yeah. with a huge mandate, started ruling like an authoritarian, was kicked out, and in comes Shevardnadze with a huge mandate. Starts ruling like an authoritarian, gets kicked out. Saakashvili comes in with a huge mandate, starts ruling, you know, one party rule with a, with a huge mandate, becomes authoritarian, gets kicked out. We're seeing this cycle repeat itself for the fourth time. I agree with you and I agree with the opposition on this is where the, the next iteration of Georgian politics has to go is to a true coalition government where you don't have one party that has all the power. And I'm hoping that's where we're going to go. I wish I could say I'm optimistic about it at the moment. 
but I, I at the moment I'm not so optimistic. Right. So here are a couple of things. See, we got to have some optimism for Georgians. One, let's, I want to talk about an issue. You know, you, you brought up earlier, but we didn't talk about yet. Georgia is such a pro-Western country. I do not see Russia being able to manipulate this as they would say in Ukraine. Right. So Ukraine has its own issues. You know, with ethnic Russian splits, divide, whatever. But Georgians are very pro NATO. Georgians are very pro European Union. And so I think it would be very difficult, even though you have this whole Ivanishvili dynamic, the idea is that you have Georgia dream, you know, that is pushing towards European Union and NATO membership. Uh, they're going to apply in 2024 for European Union membership. And we can have conversations about how devoted they are to that, but they cannot be an openly pro-Russia party. You can't no. do that in Georgia. No, you can't. You oh. can't do that in Georgia. And you, you can, can increasingly can't. not do that in Ukraine either. <laughs> it's, 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 well, you can oh, but here's the thing. Like this current, yeah, you can't, no, you can't do that in Ukraine either. In fact, in the past, oh, we. In the know, past, you could, but post-2014, you no, really oh, can't. No, no. Post oh, oh, they're dead. Like you're, yeah. you're not, so never, no, no, they're, they're gone. If you go around, I don't know, I, I go to Ukraine and, and I'm, you know, we'll have this conversation later, but basically, because I, I was going to tell you about my travels in Ukraine, what I observed, but going back to Georgia, I um, I think we should have confidence in the intelligence and the savvy of the Georgian people, you know, because if you look at recent polling, right, none of these parties are particularly popular. No, they're if, not. If, if, so if you look at NDI's recent um, polls, Georgian attitudes towards the parties, you'll see that Georgian dream is in the majority, but it's not by much. You know, mm -hmm. when you think of the popularity, they're around 30%, or right. something like that. And if you're the root, then you have about 50% who are unsure or average yeah. or whatever they may be. The Georgians are fed up with everybody right now. Well, I think what you're right that we should not give up on the intelligence of the Georgian people. What has to happen is that Georgia's friends in the West in this town that I'm in, um, as well as in other Western capitals, need to step it up again and, and start engaging Georgia, because we've been kind of absent. We could do this forever, Terrell, but I gotta yeah, move yeah. to the second half right. to talk about your book. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and talk about Terrell's forthcoming memoir about his time in the former Soviet Union, which, like I said, has the awesome title, Black Man on the Steps. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies, in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is Terrell Jermaine Starr, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a senior reporter at The Root, and the host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats and author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу, а сотрудники. So, Terrell, in, in some ways, you and I have followed pretty similar paths. We spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union as young men. We continue to make regular working trips there later in our careers. We both, as we noted in the first half, have this feel this really strong connection to and interest in Ukraine and Georgia. But unlike me, you bring a very interesting and valuable perspective to this experience, which I'm really looking forward to reading about in your book. Because, like, you know, I don't have to tell you, Terrell, I'm, I'm, I'm in the kind of post-Soviet watching community here in D.C., and whenever I'm in a room, there's a lot of white faces there, right? And so I'm, I'm really interested in this book, and I want to give you a chance to talk about it and talk about your own story, how you became interested in this part of the world, what your experience there were like. And I, I like to keep the second half of the podcast casual and less structured, just just two colleagues chatting in a bar over a beer. Remember when we could do that? Man, do I miss that. So, yeah, so the thing, yeah. <laughs> to get things rolling, what is Black Man on the Steps about? What's the story you're trying to tell here? Black Man on the Steps is about the story of me, Terrell Jermaine Starr, who grew up, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, the blackest city in America, and how growing up in Detroit, but not only just Detroit, but just growing up in a poor part 
of Detroit. Both my uncles sold drugs, and, and we grew up. We were pretty much in poverty. Um, we didn't think that we were in poverty, but economically, we very much were, and we had plenty of food to eat and everything, but we still you know, were one situation away from being on the streets in many respects. So it's about how that experience, growing up in my neighborhood where I saw gang violence, you know, you name it, the boys in the hood type of experience, how that experience culminated to me getting an opportunity to go to Russia to volunteer in a Russian orphanage and how that sparked for a summer when I was in college and then how that experience kicked off a path for me to go into Peace Corps and then for me to be the first person from the University of Illinois to get a degree in Russian, East European and Eurasian studies, et cetera. But it's, it's a memoir that talks about my personal interactions with the peoples of this space and how I could not avoid the conversation of race because one, I was likely the first black person that a lot of these folks, be it in Georgia, Ukraine, Russia, Moldova, you name it, had ever met. And so because of that, I had a very different experience from my peers in Peace Corps or Fulbright and the manner in which I dealt with racism, the manner in which I dealt with all, you know, friendships were just vastly different. And so with Black Men on the Steps, it's really about how I felt like as a Black person who grew up in Detroit and who grew up poor, that helped me to understand the plights mm. and the circumstances of Russian people and Georgians and Ukrainians who are dealing with oppression, who are dealing with, in the case of Ukraine or Georgia, Russian imperialism, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, so because my story of growing up in Detroit deals with racist urban planning and it deals with how the ways in which America suppresses Black progress, I took that experience and that framework to understand how Ukrainians are dealing with their own types of oppression. The same thing with Georgians and understanding how Georgians in Slavic places are considered chordany, you know, how they're considered mm -hmm. black. And the solidarity that I felt with them. And I never thought that I would have these moments of solidarity with people who in America would be viewed as white. And I, and I explained how in the European context that Ukrainians and Georgians, et cetera, are not viewed as quote unquote pure Europeans in the larger mm -hmm. context in Brussels. And I know this, whether it be from high ranking politicians to the everyday people in this part of the world, they've told me this. And right. I just think it's fascinating that people, you know, as a black man, these people will come tell me that, hey, you know, we don't feel like Western Europeans treat us as though we are equals. And I just never thought that I would have those conversations. So the book is going to take you through all of those experiences that I've never spoken about before, about how I feel as a black man, I have so much in common with these quote unquote white folks in the former Soviet mm. Union. Oh, that is fascinating. How is that? I, I'm really interested. How is that received, Terrell? How is it received? And was it received differently in different national contexts? Like, was it received differently in Ukraine or Georgia or Russia or Moldova? Did you hear yeah. That to me is fascinating. How 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 was it differently received? So it's yeah, you're you're vastly different now. The the main thing we need to distinguish is that until you, I take out my passport, you don't know that I'm an American. So most people will assume that hey, I'm from Nigeria because that's where most black people who are in this space they're from the country oh, of Africa. I, I knew a lot of Africans there, but not a lot of African Americans. I'll say that. Yeah, for sure. I don't know a lot of African Americans, okay, because we're just not there. And that right. same number, because we're not there studying, et cetera. The most immediate difference that I felt was in Ukraine when I'm dealing with police. In Georgia, they don't stop you. You know, the Georgian right. police, right. they stop you. In Russia, in, in Ukraine, yeah. Now, in Ukraine, though, you have to remember, I started going to Ukraine in 2009, and I go, I spend about three to four months in Ukraine every year. And I spend most of my time in the Carpathian Mountains. So now, 10 years ago, when I first did my Fulbright, I stopped counting the number of times cops stopped me at about Document, Documenti pajalist. <laughs> so, yes, yes, documenti pajalist. So basically, I stopped counting at 30, okay? Right. I would stop many more times. I just stopped that. I'm like, forget this. I'm not, I'm not going to count anymore. Now, they don't, now it's interesting. They've gone through a wide range of police reforms. They're still corrupt, but the cops don't stop me right. anymore. You know, they just walk by. I mean, some of them even speak English. That's another topic. Right. Now, in Georgia, it's a bit different because it's the Caucasus and, you know, you have Russian writers. 
who have written disparagingly about people from the Caucasus. So basically, there is this feeling that, you know, you know, like dogs, basically. So there is, and two, just the culture is just vastly different in that it's just kind of a Mediterranean feel and people are a bit more chilled out and laid back and friendly, et cetera. Not saying that Ukrainians are friendly, they are. Right. But but Georgians, there's, at least in my personal experience, there is just, when they saw me as a black person, there is this curiosity. And again, there's this conversation around solidarity that they felt. So the context of my interactions focused around our shared struggles, if you will, because they'll talk about the times that they're stopped and they're abused in Russia right. and elsewhere. And they also ask me a lot of questions about race in America. Now, I get uh -huh. those questions in, in Ukraine as well. What about in Russia? I don't go to Russia as much, to be honest with you. So I don't, I don't nearly right. as much, and uh, not at all. So in Russia, you know, my African never, friends in Russia told me horror stories about how they were treated. And it was pretty obvious that it was the case. I was almost jumped by skinheads in Russia on several occasions. Now, I was, um, you know, I've had my run-ins with skinheads in Ukraine as well. But in Russia, it was it was really intense. The thing about Russia, and again, Russia is a great place. I love it. And I think it's a fascinating place that people are fine. I think that the Russian people are stereotyped, I think. What was really unfortunate, and I, this is just, I have to say this for my, my little 30 second thing because I'm very passionate about it. I, I feel like 2016 coverage of Russia and Russia Gate, as people call it, failed the Russian people because we didn't learn a doggone thing about Russians besides Putin and the fact that it's cold and they got a whole bunch of weapons and they're trying to kill us. I, I was, you know, so I, I'm very passionate about that. Russia is a really great place, but I, I just had to say that. Forget well, we got to make but a that, distinction between Russia and the Kremlin, right? It, that's, it, that's exactly. Yes, yes, it, precisely, right? So, so basically, it, you know, at my time there was pretty cool. It, it was just that, well, I was in my 20s when I went, but also Russia. When you when you talk about race, you have to remember that I was in a I was in an orphanage that whole time. And I'll never forget that I saw some kids that are from Chechnya, uh -huh. you know? And people were saying, oh, well, these children are from Chechnya. And I didn't understand Chechnya back then because I was kind of new to the field, you know, and new to the country. And so I'm like, wow, you know, the, the first thing that came to my mind, I'm like, wow, these white, there are different types of white people in the world. <laughs> I mean, that was my innocent, young, you know, kind of version, kind of feel to this right. part of the world. It's one of the things that Russia did for me was that it, it opened me up to the complexity of how race functions in the world. And so it, for me, it was a great foundational base for me to understand everything. But most importantly, you know, it also taught me that um, Russia, listen, I look at Russia and America both as imperial nations, right? So I look at this whole, I look at everything through the, the lens of imperialism. United States and Russia they are imperialist nations. And I know that ruffles a few feathers, but I think that it depends on your point of view as somebody who can step outside this door and get shot and killed by cops. And, you know, just, you know, we have this murder trial of a cop who killed George mm -hmm. Floyd going yeah. on right now, right? Yeah. And here yeah. in the United States, I can be George Floyd just walking out and, you know, walking out my door in America, and for Putin, you know, it's interesting. Uh, remember that quote that that was pulled, where he said, "It takes one to know one." When in the response to being called a killer, what's interesting is that the news outlets did not really highlight the rest of his points. Right? If you listen to that full video clip of him talking, he talks about the discrimination and things like that that Black people face in America. And now, do I believe that Putin? gives a dog on about race and everything. Of course he does. No, this is an old trope that they pull out. And this is... It doesn't mean he's wrong, though, okay? That's the whole thing. And so... But those are things that I studied early on when I was traveling through Russia. And I always had this very nuanced approach to Russia. You know, this, this whole idea of good versus evil, I don't use that platform because I think they both are in their own ways. Do I think that America, obviously, in the, in the ways of human rights is ahead of Russia? Yes, I do. Of course I do. That doesn't negate the fact that we are without our criticisms, but it overall, you know, being in Russia, it, it really made me think critically about 
the woe is me mindset in the foreign policy space when we're analyzing Russia. Right. And so because of that experience, I have more nuance when I view the country. Right. No, this is another reason why I'm really looking forward to reading your book. We're bumping up against the end here, but there is one other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. And that is, I, I kind of telegraphed it in the first half, where I talked about you know the, the obvious Russian attempts to exploit uh, issues of race in America in trying to you know divide Americans, turn us against each other. This is a, I see this as a national security threat, quite frankly. And there was a Kremlin white paper that didn't get a lot of notice. I wrote about it in my blog back in back in 2013 or 2012, if I'm not mistaken, and which basically was a laid out a plan. This is how we do this. This is how we drive a wedge, you know, in Western countries. And one of the one of the issues was race. Now. How do you see the relationship between combating racism in America and enhancing our national security in terms of this? Because if we can decrease the polarization in this society, right, to the extent that we do that, we enhance our national security. And we are, you know, we are not polarized more on any issue you know, than race. That is the most polarizing issue in America right now. It is America's original sin, and it remains our most polarizing issue. How do you see the relationship between dealing with this domestic issue that we as Americans need to work through and enhancing our national security at the same time when a hostile foreign power is attempting to exploit this um, and use this weakness in our society against us. I don't think it's especially hard to directly answer your question. We have to realize that both America and Russia are imperialist nations. So when you think about the framework of our foreign policy outlook, we have to ask ourselves, how devoted are we to imperialism? How devoted are we to neoliberalism, the use of the military, the use of capitalism, which is exploitive in, in its nature and in its genesis, right? How devoted are we to the use of the military in our capitalism in order to advance the goals of the United States? That's a philosophical question that I think is at the heart of not only foreign policy in America, but just our own moral conscience as human beings, regardless of where we are in the world, right? Particularly if you're dealing with Russia, America, and then you have China as well, right? So that's the main thing that we have to ask ourselves. So if we're talking about imperialism, we have to think about the idea that the more that we exclude people of color outside these conversations, the weaker our foreign policy is. Because you don't have people who are thinking from perspectives that are different from your own. So the orthodoxy of, of foreign policy is white male dominated. And the way that we formulate foreign policy is it's all based on outlook. How do you want the world to be governed, right? And people have a rudimentary understanding of this from domestic politics. How do you want your city government to treat you? You know, you want your trash picked up. You want your water to run. You want your utilities to function at a basic level. You know, you know it's stuff like that. From a foreign policy standpoint, we don't have that conversation because we don't really educate Americans enough on what do we want from the world, right? You know, mm -hmm. and so the idea is about climate change, you know, which disproportionately impacts people of color. You have a whole continent in Africa in which they will be disproportionately impacted by climate change, even though they emit the fewest levels of CO2 into the atmosphere, right? So going back to Putin, you know, and going back to Russia, you know, this is not a new thing. So black folk have been going to Russia since the 1800s, but particularly during the, you know, started during the 1920s in particular, because they were looking for a new political system that they felt would give them better equality, better treatment than they would get here in the United States. And so this lore to you know, current Russian propaganda has a lot to do with the fact that our own domestic policy has failed black people. Right. Okay, let's just start there. And so you're naturally gonna look for other ways and other countries that you feel is gonna treat you better. And so the, one of the more, the most famous black person who tried, who gave communism a shot is Paul Robeson, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so so if, if you really wanna have an understanding of black despair, is if you look at Paul Robeson's speeches, by the way, if you heard him, he spoke Russian pretty well, mm -hmm. you know, like this was talk, right? And, you know, yep. he's, you know, he sang in Russian and Yiddish and things like that. And so you have this long legacy. I'm not saying that black people went in droves, but they went 
in smaller numbers, but but they also had a strong uh, imprint in the American South, right? With labor, right? You know, right. The, but but the problem with the Russians, of course, with Stalin was that he used forced labor. I mean, literally, you know, pretty much de facto yeah. um, slavery, pretty much. Right? I mean, the labor camps and all those other things. So. So they had their own issues, but black people were lured to this and continue to be lured by these calls of Russia exploiting race because America has failed. And until we step up, particularly with the GOP, and I'm saying this very objectively because you can go, it's, it's documented. Um, you see it in Georgia and just in today in Texas, I just wrote about this. You have this suppression of voter access, you know, fewer opportunities to go to the ballot box. That's something easy for Putin to explain. And again, he's right about that. And so as opposed to saying this is propaganda, mm -hmm. we have to decide as a country if we're really to call him a liar and at every opportunity, there are too many elected officials in this country that refuse to do so. Yeah, no, we, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. We need to decrease the polarization and the inequality in our society. That will make us more resilient and that will make us safer from these attempts at, at foreign adversaries to to exploit our differences. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, these are issues that we as Americans need to work out, right? And, and we do ourselves a favor, and we do our national security a big favor by working on Terrell, I could continue this thing for hours, but I think my production team would probably kill me. So <laughs> but listen, we I want to a, We got to go to a real bar someday. We got to go to a bar either here in D.C. or you show me a cool one up there in New York City. I'm from actually from that part of the country. But um, I want you to promise you're going to come back on, man, because I, I want to continue this conversation. I want to get you in my regular stable of guests. When your book comes out, um, I don't know what the publication date is. My book comes out in fall of 2022 because I'm still right through the book. is not going to be written for completely until the end of this year, but... Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming on to your show because yeah, I know I know you're something of an expert in arms control. So maybe you know yeah. when the treaty starts being talked about, we'll have you on. But I hope this will not be your last appearance in the podcast because I've, I've truly, truly enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you so much. And on that note, we'll wrap it up because that is all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And joining me from New York City has been Terrell Germain Starr, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a senior reporter at The Root, host and founder of the podcast Black Diplomats, and author of the forthcoming book, Black Man on the Steps. Thank you again, Terrell, for a enlightening and fascinating discussion. Thank you. I appreciate you. it. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Leakes is in the virtual control room, and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making me and my guests sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.